Welcome to the Bailey. This is a show where tracing wood grains has temporarily been transformed into a pleosaur. I'm your host, Yassine Masood, and today's topic is going to be about voter franchise. <laughs> today's topic is going to be about voter disenfranchisement, or the opposite, whatever that word may be. Enfranchisement. Enfranchisement. Yeah. Enfranchisement. We're going to be talking about voter franchise, whether it should go up, down, left, right, up, down, A B A B. Or to McDonald's. Yeah, I, any anything is anything is on the table right now. <laughs> so we're gonna introduce our panels, and everyone's gonna say their own uh, position statement. All right. So great, Jasoni. Um, I am great, Jasoni. My position on this is that I think it is probably too easy to vote right now, um, and that has a lot of um, kind of cascading utilitarian consequences because it's, uh, you know, anybody can vote without skin in the game or without really knowing anything about what the issues are, then it becomes very easy for oligarchs to manipulate the population, thus rendering voting mostly meaningless. People aren't really that in control of their own decisions, especially if they have no idea what's going on. So they mostly just vote on kind of superficial, meaningless things, while as the actual informed people who might be able to cast a meaningful vote based on some sort of metric, they're drowned out by the sea. I think if we had some sort of restrictions on voting, I would be very vague and noncommittal as to what those were. It might help solve those issues, and we can hash that as it goes on. Well, now I feel vapid. I only vote on superficial issues. <laughs> Go ahead, Neofos. Uh I'm Neofos, and... I think that everyone should vote, and where I come from, they pretty much do. And any any claim for political ignorance is probably a bad idea, because if you would require that people would be sufficiently informed to vote, that would mean that making the system harder and more complicated would give you more power, because less people would be able to vote. And the perfect system would be one so complicated that only you understand it, which would make you a dictator by default. It's a horrible incentive system. And uh, for for our listeners, where where do you come from? I'm Swedish, so we I am used to at least ninety percent of the populace participating in a national election. And Master Thief, go ahead. My position on this is that if we're going to have democratic government, which I think is a good idea, but so long, so long as we're doing democracies, uh, restricting the voter base to prevent any one group of people strikes me as setting up very, very uh, bad incentive structure if you're going to, oh, let's restrict the voter base to prevent the unintelligent from voting. Well, how do you know that you're the smart people, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, you know, the, the, the Rawlsian veil of ignorance, it's like, would you want to be subjected to the loss of your own right to vote if you don't meet whatever arbitrary standards? I just think it's it's a terrible game. And let's not pray it. Let's keep the franchise as open as possible because we all participate in society, uh, joker aside, and we all uh, we all need to have a share of, of uh, how we set the rules. Saying and unsaying. Welcome back again. <laughs> well, my position is that uh, democracy seems to be working pretty well for the most part so far, but that a lot of really glaring flaws have come up in it. And I think that most of those ultimately come down to the vote being too accessible to too many people. I would say a good example of a major red flag would be people electing actors. I think there are just certain things that human beings are naturally prone to doing that make no sense at all in the context of uh, voting for governance, and that's a good example of them. So I'd say that uh, there's probably a balance between quality of voters versus uh, how difficult it is to control the, the voters, because... Um, 
the fewer people that have the vote, the easier it is to pander to them and so on. So in theory, a larger voting pool is going to be more robust and more difficult to hack. But on the other hand, obviously, we're already doing things like restricting the vote to the mentally incompetent. And so between that, uh, restricting the vote when it comes to non-citizens or even citizens of other countries, it's all clear that it's clear that we all want to draw the line somewhere. But where that is, is very much up for debate, I think. Okay. And in terms of my own position statement, I am extremely cynical about the prospect of uh, voting in general, but I'm also not in favor of restricting the franchise if we're going to have it. Although that is going to depend on exactly what goal you're trying to further uh, and what objective you want to put forward when it comes to uh, having voting. As a form of background, one thing we can start with is to address some of the vociferous contrarians about uh, voting that are sort of rational rationality sphere adjacent. And what I have in mind is Brian Kaplan. He wrote a book called The Myth of the Rational Voter. And we also have sort of adjacent, uh, we have uh, George Mason professor um, Ilya Somin, who wrote, has written extensively about uh, voter ignorance. This is kind of like a corollary subject. The prospect of voter ignorance or political ignorance tends to be used in support of restricting the franchise. Because if people are can't be bothered to research what candidates they uh, are voting for, then why should they even be able to vote, period? So some classic examples. Theoretically, the, the prospect of democracy is supported by this idea that if you aggregate mistakes, on average, people are going to do the right thing. So if you have a contest where you have a jar of jelly beans and you ask a crowd, guess how many jelly beans they are. Each individual is, is going to be widely incorrect, but if you average their guess, they're probably going to be like relatively close to it. And this is an idea known as the wisdom of crowds, which was uh, elaborated upon by uh, James Soro Wiki. Why? why week, week, yeah. <laughs> I'll edit that. <laughs> Uh, in his book called The Wisdom of Crowds. So that's that's kind of like one basis for why voting is a good thing. Uh, in general, you're going to have like this uh, average, on average, the, the voter is going to be, is going to pick the right policy, is going to pick the right candidate, and society is going to be better off from it. What Brian Kaplan has demonstrated in multiple ways over and over again, repeatedly, is that voter ignorance isn't agnostic. It tends to have biases. And it tends to have these biases that shift it away from picking the right the right policy, the right candidate, or whatever. In Brian Kaplan's uh, position, he believes that voters have what he considers to have to be anti-free market biases. So they tend to be voters tend to be more xenophobic than the facts warrant, uh, more suspicious of free markets than the facts warrant, at least in his opinion. And so instead of having this kind of like agnostic average where you still end up with the right policy, you end up with these systemic biases against policies that would otherwise help people, if not for their ignorance. And the examples that Ilya Samin uh, has in store is the uh, the incentive structure is all wrong. So the idea is that you, the average person is going to spend a lot more time choosing what kind of television to buy rather than who, which candidate to vote for. And this is why it's called rational ignorance in that it makes sense not to waste your time trying to pick which candidate you're voting for because it's extremely unlikely that your vote is going to determine the outcome. So it kind of pays to be lazy, it pays to be ignorant, because putting in more time towards that enterprise is not going to pay off. Whereas if you make the wrong decision, 
in terms of which television to buy, you are going to suffer from it. So that's kind of like a, a summary that outlines the broad anarchist libertarian objections to voting. Unsaying. You know, w- one thing I wanted to get out there right up front is that uh, we kind of have to have the conversation on two different levels. On the one hand, we need to talk about what's practical and could potentially be instituted. And on the other hand, it's fun to talk about what might be in another world, because a lot of the theoretical best setups for who gets to vote and who doesn't are in no way practical at this point. Yeah, this show is going to be kind of veering into policy wonk territory. So there's going to be some real life practical proposals, but it's also fun to pontificate about unrealistic ones. And the unrealistic ones would be restricting the franchise by IQ. Or by some weird measurement of political knowledge. Like not just IQ, but how much do you know about the government so that you are worthy of voting? What proposals do we think are realistic? Well, how about we start with uh, what already exists? Master Thief. Yeah, the obvious one, of course, is felon disenfranchisement, where in most states in the United States, I believe Vermont is the only exception. Uh, if you are in prison, in jail, uh, or otherwise, you know, have outstanding fines or on probation, uh, you lose your right to vote and you cannot vote again until your voting rights are specifically restored. And the UFS. And the big one here is, of course, citizenship and how long you have had to be a citizen to get the right to vote. And if it counts that you can be allowed to stay in Sweden permanently, but still not be a citizen. And if you're allowed to vote in that case and so on. And the other one is age. Let toddlers vote. Those statuses tend to be what put your voting rights at risk, at least in the United States. Unsaying. There's age. The third one is uh, mental competence. And as we've as we've established, uh, different states have different thresholds, but essentially judge can declare someone mentally incompetent. And at that point, they no longer have the franchise. So that is one example. But how prevalent is it? In what sense? I mean, how likely is it to happen? I think uh, there was an article posted about how, you know, I think very few people know that you can lose your vote, uh, your right to vote if you're declared uh, mentally incompetent. But how often does that happen? I have no idea, and I don't think most people. I don't think it affects most people's lives. Obviously, just as a point of order, there is one other way to lose voting rights, which is to be dishonorably discharged from the military. At which point, you are essentially a non-citizen. Yeah, yeah. Dishonorable discharge, for all intents and purposes, in the United States, works the same as a felony conviction. The the mental one that had to be. I just skimmed it, but that had to be established by a court, right? So there has to be someone that points the finger at you and says, he's so stupid, he shouldn't vote. That's correct. And that got her, yeah, that got an hour done a lot. I mean, there's a lot of stupid people that no one really minds that they're stupid, especially not enough to get a judge to tell you that you can't vote. Master Thief. Yeah, the article that, that we found was uh, from the Pew Charitable Trust uh, about voting and mental illness. And these are mostly people uh, who are institutionalized or in nursing homes. There's really di- a different set based upon which which state you're in because we're the United States we do everything by state and there's there's no one fixed standard but yeah it it has it has to be pretty much found by a judge in many cases people who are under legal conservatorship or guardianship automatically lose their right to vote the 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 standards for voting uh given you know it's it's not officially protected in the US but uh given how important it is to you know, the, the the function of the democratic process in general, uh, it's, it seems like there has been when it, you know, back in, back in the, back in the 19, you know, 
early 19, 1900s or so when voting was was really considered it's like oh this is what the upper class did you had cases um you know you had um active um you know jim crow laws uh in cases like buck v bell coming out of the supreme court you know three generations of imbeciles are enough in the infamous saying uh that and they they just found any reason or or basically no reason besides prejudice uh to take away people's voting rights and that was a that was a very dark time in American society. I prefer we just not go back to that. So this is what I'm curious to hear about from the folks that are pro restricting the franchise, especially on IQ or some other test. Are you concerned about simply mimicking the same tactics that were used to take away the rights of blacks to vote in the South? And the examples that come to mind, I mean, Master Thief made some examples, but there's poll tax. There's the reading literacy tests. Uh, there's all sorts of uh, shenanigans that were enacted specifically, you know, they, they would have like a pretextual reason. Oh, we just want to make sure that people can read or that they have some sort of a nexus uh, to a stake in society. But that was all a pretext in order specifically to target uh, black people. Great. Just Sony. Uh, people on the left currently, and I think we have to bring this up more generally if we're talking about voter restrictions that already exist. If you look at the left-wing narratives, which I don't know how anybody here would be sympathetic to, but you see this come up a lot when proposing uh, voter ID laws, the common left-wing talking points, and I, I try not to strawman them, but there is a, um, you know, there's an idea that, uh, okay, let's say we force everybody to get an ID. Well, um, if you look at the way um, DMVs are distributed, for example, right, um, there are more government buildings where you can go and get your ID that are closer to white, rich neighborhoods than they are to, you know, poor, segregated black neighborhoods, right? And that a lot of people on the left say that voter ID is a pretext to arbitrarily deny people the right to vote and that there are kind of these insidious institutional factors that may not be on the books, but there's just, there's all these little bits of, um, just the way any town is set up, any uh, municipality of, you know, where they put certain buildings or what kind of uh, hoops you have to jump through or certain fees you have to pay to get things to vote. These are all things that I think, even if they're not as explicit as restrictions by age or um, felonies or anything like that, at least, you know, a substantial portion of people in the conversation would argue that these are um, just as large restrictions, if not even larger ones that are currently imposed in the population. And it's already very difficult for people to vote and that there are certain people trying to make it harder already based on this pretext. Yeah, and I mean, I can steal Manda even further. It's not it's not just about the DMV location, but the same kind of wherewithal and conscientiousness that you find in otherwise wealthy individuals uh, that would be lacking in, uh, in a poor, from either like a racial minority or someone from a poor background where they move a lot, they get evicted, they tend to lose their shit much more often. It's much harder to keep track of all the documents that you're... Uh, that you should be aware of the living stability is just not the same as someone with an established uh, lifestyle. So there's all sorts of ways where that could be considered insidious with that just creep up that make it slightly difficult. Uh, but ultimately it would have kind of like a disproportionate impact on uh, people that are poor. And, you know, by extension, it's going to be racial minorities in the United States just by, by proxy unsaying. I'd like to respond to the idea that, uh, we should be worried about doing something just because in the past it has been used to say target black people for example i think as a general as a general principle bad motivations don't imply bad policy um and a great example is uh anything you've ever heard well hitler did that you know i like volkswagens <laughs> you know uh we can't look to the past and say well these people did this thing that 
you know, unrelated to their motivation might have been a great idea, but because their motivation was bad, we should never consider it. That's just not a good way to approach the situation. But I don't think that's addressing my concern. I, I said it's a pretext uh, in the sense that they say, at least the proposals are for ostensibly this good, good goal, but it's not, it's, it's a pretext for much more ulterior purpose. And that's why I mentioned things like uh, literacy tests and poll tax, which were unevenly enforced. Sure. But also just kind of the entire basis for it is, is to me, obviously a pretext. Well, I just don't care. I mean, um, again, if someone's motivation is terrible, but it still leads to objectively good policy, I'm for it. And uh, an example would be, sure, at the time, it was very unfair to expect a lot of black people, especially in the South, to be able to read. At this point, if a black person or anyone else can't read as an adult, I'm pretty firmly on the side of not letting them vote. That's not a systemic thing that's keeping them out of voting. That's almost always a choice they've made. Granted, it's often a, a very unfair choice because they have all kinds of handicaps, but it's still not speaking well of their potential as a voter. Do you see it complicated at all insofar as education is delivered through a public institution and that same institution is governed by voting or at least candidates or uh, politicians that get elected by by voting? So to me, what you're describing is almost like a feedback loop that repeats itself. It, it could be. I mean, there's certainly potential for any system to go wrong that way, but I'm not convinced that it has. If anything, I'd say that the deployment of public education you know, even in the most terrible school, if you manage to go through 12 years of school and not learn how to read, yeah, the system has failed you to some degree, but you could have learned. There was going to be the resources there, especially in this day and age with phones and whatnot. Great, Jasoni. I think that it is a feedback loop is an argument for restricting the vote. And that, I mean, you know, if voting was a good method of, you know, producing these good outcomes, you would think that we'd have a good schools and we wouldn't have large numbers of the population who are illiterate. I mean, this wouldn't be an issue at all if we had... Uh, properly functioning education system. And ultimately, you know, you could blame that on the voters if we're going to go down that line of reasoning is that the feedback loop is entirely bad voters vote for bad schools, which produce even worse voters, which produce worse schools and so on and so forth. Master Thief. But is that necessarily the case? I know that there would be a lot of people like, you know, some a lot of first generation immigrants that 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 I've known uh personally they were they were always in favor of the best possible education for their children and the best possible schools even though uh they in some in some cases they could they could barely read or write or, or speak english themselves but they knew how important it was so i'm i'm not exactly sure that 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 holds um you know across populations the second uh, question I, I think I, I have to ask is what is the purpose of voting and what do you define as a good election outcome? Is it where you get uh, this 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 arbitrarily determined optimal policy or is it where everyone has a chance to express their view on what the collective rules of society should be? Great, Jasoni. Why would the latter be a value at all? I don't understand. The, like, Why is there inherent value in being able to express something? Like, And why are their expressions valid? That seems like jumping like a lot of steps. I mean, what a big one is that it lends legitimacy to uh, a system. Yes. It's, uh, it's seen as more legitimate when you have some say in the matter. Maybe your say is, you know, fool, fool, uh, foolish, uh, but it, it's an improvement in the EFAS. I'd, l- I'd like to return to the education part. I don't want to dwell too much into education. I think it is important to establish the purpose of voting, whether voice by itself is is important or whether we're just looking for specific policy results. 
Yeah, because that's be the political ignorance part, right? Because the educational system should be set up so that the voters are as informed as they have to be in order to vote. But that also means that if you set up schools to not teach people how to vote and then do disenfranchisement based on their political knowledge, that means that you can you can have an educational system that does not give you any power. I mean, it's a weird incentive that you have to go through the public school in order to even be able to vote for the public school. You can't ever opt out. Well, okay, so I'm, I'm curious to know what would everyone's stance be in terms of what the point of voting is? Unsaying. I think legitimacy is the biggest factor. It's getting people to buy into the system and not constantly be looking for reasons to overthrow it. And do you agree, do you agree, unsaying, do you agree that just simply having a voice lends to that legitimacy? I think feeling that you have a voice lends to that legitimacy. I don't think you necessarily actually need one. Also, I want to point out that historically, giving people the vote was partially a way for them to buy into becoming part of these giant national armies. Uh, whereas prior to that, they really didn't see a need to. So giving them the feeling of being stakeholders in a system saying you have some influence on which way this goes, uh, suddenly they're much more willing to lay down their lives or pay taxes or do whatever else. Master Thief. But, to, but a contrary example, which is, uh, is, is how they lowered the voting age, which used to be 21, that was lowered uh, to 18 by constitutional limit. The reason was, is that eight, at age 18, you were subject to the draft. And the basic argument, which had a lot of credence, was that why should you be forced to give up your life for your country if you don't have a say in what the country does? On the other hand, we still have women who cannot be drafted but get the same representation. And I don't know if we want to go in that direction, but uh, it is worth noting, I think. Great, Jasoni. What do you see as the purpose of voting? Well, in thinking about that, it's kind of hard to say anything honest about it. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm, also, I'm very cynical about voting in general. And so, I mean, we could kind of stay in this theoretical realm about legitimacy. But as far as I'm concerned, I mean, every vote is wasted. It doesn't really matter. It, it just simply, I, I don't really see how the legitimacy follows from votes on a practical matter. But I do think if we're just talking about like, yes, if we're talking about enlightenment political theory, then yes, that does make sense. That is the intended purpose of it. Um, I think at some point we have to consider, well, what are good outcomes, right? And, and I think uh, a decent analogy here is like, you know, I mean, you don't, having a voice in things is not really that, I, I don't really understand why it's a value at all. Generally, I'm, I'm also, I'm kind of anti-freedom, anti-individualism. I have all these contrarian positions, but uh, you know, you don't need a voice in every situation when something you don't understand is at risk. And we do this all the time, right? If you're doing your taxes, right? You don't have an equal voice like you and your accountant. I mean, you can kind of butt in and say certain things. They do work for you, but at some level, they understand this extremely complex system that you don't, right? They have specialized in it and you are paying them to kind of take care of that for you. If you have a lawyer, right, you can butt in on your strategy here and there. And technically, you know, maybe they work for you, they have to do something, but at some point it's in your best interest to let the lawyer handle things for you. And if you thought, well, I'm going to go have a voice, I'm going to go defend myself and do this because of my voice. Well, I mean, you could do that on some kind of higher principle. I don't really know where metaphysically you justify that. And that's kind of too abstract of a conversation to get into in the time we have. But um, it just kind of, I, I see that becoming even more asinine of a scenario in the case of voting, where it's the entire country is at stake and literally nobody understands how it uh, functions. Nobody understands the economy. Nobody can name every single you know government bureaucracy or what they do or every corporation or 
um, you know, the, I mean, everything's just in a, a feedback loop of these absurdly complicated systems that we have to kind of put together piecemeal by all these teams of experts that just happen to have ended up in them. And, you know, somehow it's all taped together and just, you know, it doesn't fall apart. But then we're going to trust, you know, just any Joe Blow on the street. Well, they should have a voice about it. They should have this. And I just, uh, and, and this is very cynical again, but I, I just don't see where that follows. And so in my skepticism of that, we default to a utilitarian concern of uh, what would produce the best outcomes. So if you were living during the American Revolution, would be would you be on the side of the loyalists? Yes. Okay. 100%. All right. That's consistency. <laughs> Master the, the the other the other uh, you know possible push the other uh, sort of general pushback is that uh, in most cases it's not the voters themselves who are choosing policy uh, except in places like you know California which has gone completely off the rails and everything is subject uh, to voter referendums and it's very easy to amend the constitution I think I think your arguments are, are much stronger in that field but you know the ability of a person to choose basically who they want to focus full time on all these political questions, uh, you know, represented democracy instead of direct democracy. Uh, do you have do you have the same objections to that? Um, yes, and I mean that is where the analogy breaks down because that is what we already do, right? We pay a pol- I mean, we hire quote unquote a politician to do these things for us. But uh, again, even in that, I mean, you could just you could take the analogy further of like, well, I'm you know I have this lawyer for my family that's involved in the case. I'm going to let my children decide on who the lawyer should be or something like that. I mean, just at some point is that if people don't know anything about something, then uh, if they can't understand what's going on, why does it then follow that they can understand enough to what's going on to pick the right representative? It's just, I mean, you're just kind of moving the problem away, kind of, you know, one layer, one degree of separation away from things, but still not. Um, and even representatives, right? Representatives aren't like setting things, like representatives also vote. I mean, we just have these kind of layers of, things. And even then the representatives don't really have control over the votes, right? There's all kinds of social pressure. There's whips and lobbyists and these different, you know, entities that are forcing them or, you know, the president, they can't just do whatever they want. They have to, they have these teams of advisors and they have people that, you know, they, they can't anger They're you know, they're placating all these different concerns at once, which uh, kind of incentivizes to, to act in a certain way that is completely different from how they would act in a vacuum, right? Is that there's not really any freedom in the process. So under what circumstances would you actually support voting? Um, I don't know. It's, uh, I think in local elections, it's very powerful because of... Um, how, how local are we talking about, though? Um... I, I, I don't know. Your family wants to go out for ice cream. Yeah, me, medium-sized cities, I would say, something like that. <laughs> Uh, maybe like anything. I mean, once you get up to half a million people, I think just the scale makes everything so um, far removed from any kind of legitimate active voice that I think it gets kind of silly. But you know, I, I but you know, within cities, even large cities, because those get broken down to different sections and areas. I think local politics is generally just a much more fruitful and impactful thing to be for people to be spending their time on. Um, federal politics, I think, should be many more layers of abstraction removed from that just because it is so much more um, complicated. But why, why even support voting? If you I don't, know? I mean, <laughs> but, but that's what I asked you, like where you would support it. You said that. Well, that's why I said, like, I can't, you know, I, I mean, in those situations, I mean, there are the practical necessities of, I mean, it's, you know, you want people to be represented. Uh, you don't want, you know, tyrants taking over a city. You don't want, um, no, but, but, uh, but why do you want people represented? Uh, I mean, because, Outside interests can very easily abuse the resources of the city 
to give themselves things disproportionately at the expense of those who are not represented, right? I mean, it's just the obvious mechanism of representation that you get the things that you need, you advocate for yourself. This is something that Ilya Samin writes about where he says voters are ignorant, but there's kind of like a limit to that ignorance where when it, when things get really, really badly, people will vote like the imbeciles in power out. Yeah. So there's kind of almost like a maybe you would call it a fail safe where in general, like during normal times, like, yeah, they like make some boneheaded decisions, but it's really there just to prevent like completely going off the rails into catastrophe land. So there seems to be some merit to that argument, but without that, what, how do you, what's the feedback loop for you? And I mean, this is kind of coming on the heels of the neo reaction episode. So maybe it's tied to that uh, philosophy. Yeah, I mean, if we're going by that philosophy, then I would advocate for more of a, a competent aristocracy that's kind of doing the same thing where you're, you know, you're, you have some kind of strong institution that's carefully vesting power into, uh, you know, a much smaller pool of actors or just one actor, but it's kind of, you know, um, either a family works um, or just, you know, some kind of institution, you try to keep it from being corrupted as best you can. Um, but I think... And that's prone to all sorts of issues, I think. I mean, that has gone wrong throughout history, you know, many, many times. But I'm skeptical. I, you know, it's not so much that I have faith in those fail-safes, so much that I am skeptical of the large spread uh, fail-safe that is, you know, democracy on the scale of a country. And I, maybe it would work better if we weren't in this age of globalization technology. But because the internet makes it so easy to uh, for large actors to manipulate people and kind of and this goes back to the conversation about super stimulus, where I think, I mean, most people aren't really free or have legitimate personalities or voices or identities at all. But th the Internet exacerbates that so much that at some point it's, you know, I can't really trust that as a fail safe because and it's like the argument you were bringing up before is that people might just be naturally incentivized. I and mean, if you're looking at the jelly beans and uh, they might just be incentivized as a group uh, to go towards something that is very wrong. And I see no reason why groups can't go towards something horrible like the Holocaust or, I mean, just, you know, I mean, democracy has produced terrible, terrible results many times. I, I just don't, I don't trust the failsafe. I think it's entirely theoretical. I think that we've had fascist, tyrannical governments and democracies and, you know, many, many, many times. And it's really just kind of this wishful thinking that keeps us from thinking that, oh, well, the mob will somehow know better. And the, the mob to me is the aggregate amalgamation of all of human sin all just put together. It's like all your all your worst instincts come together in a crowd and you start tarring and feathering people and burning down buildings. And so, you know, it's just a, I, like, I, I think of democracy as a riot essentially. And I, I don't, I don't like riots. So your, your ideal world doesn't necessarily have people voting. Not, I mean, only in like the soft social power that the aristocracy, they might, you know, uh, express certain things. They might vote amongst themselves, but it'd be a much smaller, more informal thing. We would have our, our betters do that for us and they would have the responsibility of ruling. So barring, barring that utopia, and I, I don't mean that disparagingly, but barring, barring that, what would you settle for in terms of restricting the franchise? Uh, well, I, I, again, I'd like to be kind of vague. Uh, I think <laughs> probably has like more specific things. Cause I, I think it's one, I mean, it's a very difficult problem and two, it'll never, I mean, it's so unrealistic. I, the only proposal that I think will take the franchise away going forward is maybe like social credit score or something. But, and third, I almost, I, I kind of think it's meaningless because I am so skeptical of voting that I, I just think that voting doesn't really control anything, right? I mean, there's just kind of this, uh, except in local elections where things are smaller, but at some point, once the scale gets up, then uh, Moloch is in charge. So we have these 
so many skewed incentive structures. And that's what I was saying earlier is we have, you know, uh, like, like most of the government, right? Like if you just take the White House, let's say Donald Trump died, nobody exists in the White House, right? The government would be fine. N- nothing would change in the day to day. You wouldn't stop getting your mail. You wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't stop doing taxes because they're unelected bureaucrats across, you know, this gigantic, you know, Leviathan apparatus that has been constructed and they create our, everything on a day to day basis. And it's a fundamentally undemocratic thing. I mean, it's that politicians, you know, they, they write these gigantic bills that nobody reads. It's just kind of these, you know, people in a dark room that's hidden away somewhere and, you know, and only the upper echelon aristocracy among the politicians even gets to negotiate on those things. Even then, they don't understand it, and people smuggle things in all the time. And it's just, it, it's a, a labyrinth, it's a mess. And voters have very indirect control of, well, maybe we can shift the party lines, maybe we can do this or that. But the overall system is so fundamentally undemocratic in, in many cases that I, I just kind of see it as, I think the cynicism really takes over, and then I have a hard time not lying. It's just, it's kind of an unmitigated absurdity. I mean, so in support, in support of your position, Belgium hasn't had a government since December 2018. And, and by government, I mean they haven't had like a prime minister mm-hmm. or a leading party. They seem to be doing okay. Yeah, the libertarian in me says that's a good idea. I, I, would, I would be kind of down with that. And you, Fuss? On, on the matter of, of voting, to, to counter a bit of the cynicism, let me be a <laughs> bit romantic here. Yeah, let's hear from the Scandinavian. Isn't voting really about peace i mean if we if we go by the enlightenment ideals being renaissance men shouldn't voting be how we settle problems in our country i mean there there are problems without our borders and they can be settled in other ways but within our borders voting and the the slow push and pull of political parties and representatives they represent how we should solve problems we should have everyone should be allowed to vote no matter how stupid or uninformed or racist or whatever they are they should be allowed to put out representatives that put these opinions to the people at large it's it's a civilized way of actually allowing people to have a say in who rules them and all other ways of ruling all kinds of disenfranchisement disenfranchisement would mean that you you are taking away bits of that ideal you are you are slowly trying to be superior to other people you're slowly trying to be a tyranny i i think that voting is a romantic idea and I'm saying this as a Swede, and we have not had a majority government for years, because exactly because the the unwashed, stupid masses have voted a third party. So, so I, I, I'm totally against disenfranchisement. Go ahead, Master Thief. Uh, jump in on a, on a couple of things here. First, I think a lot of Great Chisoni's objections uh, seem more about the structure of government than about how democracy is 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 run. Um, the de- pure democracy, as as anybody who has who has studied ancient Greece uh, all the way up through uh, Nazi Germany, is is kind of a dangerous thing. Um, so I don't think that there can be a a good government which is a pure democracy on which everything. Uh, depends upon the vote of the people because, you know, you know, Great Jason is, is right on that, at least there's too many bad incentives. But 
in, when you're talking about something like like a in in the U.S. government or the Swedish government, where the where the government is is a mixture of democracy and oligarchy and as uh, some kind of like recognized aristocracy and even some aspects of monarchy. I I, th- I think the dangers that become less happen. But it, I, I think the question of voting is applies uh, on on the on the broad scale only in those parts of government which are supposed to be democratic. In the U.S., that is uh, votes for legislatures. Uh, in a lot of states, that's votes for, for judges for some reason, which is kind of crazy. But And, 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 he, and he's, he's absolutely right that, that, that there's a lot of, um, of things that, that are not and should not be influenced by democracy. The other, the other thing that I'm, that I'm thinking about is how uh, all these governments are really principal agent problems. It, it is, you know, you are, you are a person, you cannot set all the rules by yourself unless you had a lot of guns or nuclear weapons. Uh, and so you need to come up with a way uh, to set the rules with other people. So you have, so what you, you can't do that for yourself. So what you do is you hire agents to do them for you. You know, people who know what they're doing, people who have some kind of fiduciary duty. Uh, you see, you see this in in so many other in, in in so many other cases. You know, business, medicine, law, and you know the, the the problem is how do you make sure that the agents are actually uh, serving the needs of their principles uh, instead of going off the reservation and just serving themselves and it seems like uh, in addition to all the things we were talking about uh, the advantage of democracy is a sort of check on those agents uh, to make sure that they are actually serving the interests of the people themselves and not their own particular local interests and the the, the last thing I'm going to bring up is just you know is, is is sort of religious view on you know on political equality as a fundamental part of uh, of, of basic human equality that 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 we all stand equal before God. I know that I have no way to uh, to prove that one way or another, but it's just you know kind of where I'm coming from in, in terms of priors. There, there's different ways to support the the basic concept of voting. One of them is to say that it's a mechanism for finding out the best policy. Uh, the other is a way to, to serve as a mollification where that's a way to establish peace. As Neophos said, where if someone has a disagreement where they can be plausibly refuted by saying, well, you know, you had your chance, you voted, we voted against you. You just have to kind of accept it because that's part of what living in civil society mean. Well, I have a great quote I'd like to share that's on that topic. If you don't mind, go ahead. Votes are to swords. Exactly what banknotes are to gold. The one is effective only because the other is believed to be behind it. Uh, that was said by a British lord, F.E. Smith, um, and I think there's a lot of wisdom in it. Essentially, civil society, peaceful society, requires that someone feels they have a way to influence what's going to happen without having to resort to violence. And voting is the way that we mostly do that. Within that, I think the optimal solution is probably something like the U.S.'s Electoral College, where, sure, we have a presidential election, wink, wink, but in fact, it's it's more qualified people who are actually making the decisions. Except that that's not the case anymore because, you know, there's no point. Nowadays, there's no point in having an actual person sit in as an elector on the Electoral College because the, st- the way states allocate it is who gets the majority of the votes. That's who you have to vote for. 
the reason it's pointless now is because people have figured out that's how it works. Master Thief. Well, I, I think I think that was a whole bunch of aftermarket add-ons. You know, back when you know it was like par- parties took over. It's like, oh, we can we can we can have the parties make the choices instead of the the electoral college. And over time, is is just we've we've added so many provisions on, and that we have to deal with, uh, you know, faithless faithless electors. Like like there's one way that these people should be voting. The original design of the electoral college, I think, was genius uh, in that it was a group of people who could not otherwise be uh, holders of, of any uh, existing political, uh, legislative, executive, judicial office, uh, basically average citizens uh, allocated in a, in a way that, you know, both small states and big states got some votes, but not the entire thing. And they would come together in their state capitals and say, okay, who do we want to be president among all the people who have submitted these 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 applications to us, uh, I think something like that. If if we just took out all the aftermarket add-ons, get 538 basically average people uh, somewhere, you know, and and just interviewing candidates in the you know sort of like make it you know like like a murder board for tenure, or, uh, you know, choosing a CEO for a company. Uh, I I think at the very least we wouldn't get somebody like like Donald Trump elected. Great, Sony. So I don't want to sound too much like a reactionary here because I, I, I do. I mean, these things do sound great in principle. You know, that does sound like a great idea. I mean, it, it sounds like a dream come true if we go back to that. But just practically speaking, if these mechanisms were so genius, then how did they result in what we have now? You know, at some point, it seems like the the feedback loop takes over, and you know, whatever the design was, and you know, it, it just I think it just depends on how cynical you are about democracy. But I. I I think something that has to be established is that, okay, well, if we can establish these alternatives, you know, because democracy, you know, people will be, people can change it essentially. Right. And so is there some kind of alternative that we can establish where it keeps the mechanisms healthy, where the people can be trusted not to shoot themselves in the foot and change the mechanism to something terrible? And I think the answer is no, as borne out by history, because parties are inevitably the result of just people court. They're, they're a shelling point. They will always naturally arise. You will not have a, you know, a, a glorious, free, theoretical democracy that is free of factions. It just, it's always going to happen. This is how people work. And so I think we have to be very careful about going back to the founders' intentions, the founders' designs, because, I mean, I think they are, they were geniuses or, you know, maybe like a quarter of them were, but it just, it, it seems like they were, well, and so when one of the things, I mean, um, Neophos, one of the things that um, you brought up was about this kind of, this romantic idea of Renaissance men which I very much share. I'm, I'm quite romantic about it. And I think uh, I, I was kind of grasping at that in the last show. I was drunk, but it, uh, <laughs> the, I, I, you know, I, I do part of being a Renaissance man is not just, you know, it's not just peace, but I mean, there's this notion of education and civility and competence. You know, there are certain virtues that come along with that. Democracy is not this free reign to do anything it, it is you know you have to you have to be uh you know if we have a democracy of renaissance well that would be the greatest democracy ever right because all the renaissance men are these eminently qualified people to vote they would care and they would you know they have virtues and they've owned themselves and i, and I do think that i also very much am strongly coming from the prior that uh, master thief pointed out from almost the same religious perspective that all men are created in the image of god and i think but I, I get very different conclusions out of that in that, you know, that entails mercy to all people. And that I think if 
democracy is causing everybody to suffer, then, you know, I, I don't see how everybody being made in the image of God means that everybody has to have a say in how, you know, uh, the IRS is run or how the State Department is run or what we're going to do about Syria or this. I mean, just these are insane issues. Like all children are created in the image of God and they are all innocent, but I would never, you know, say to a child like, okay, hey, do my taxes. You're part of the household. You're being fed. You know, it just doesn't, it, it doesn't follow. And I think the reason for that, not to speculate, but I think as a society, we have internalized an enlightenment conception of the world where we tie these religious conceptions to liberalism, right? And then from there, we take liberalism and we read it back into our religion. And I'm strongly against that. I think that to reduce all of us being made in the image of God, to reduce that down to something as vulgar as, you know, voting for, you know, uh, John Cornyn versus, you know, whoever else is such a vulgar, you know, it's to drag God down to earth. It's such a terrible use of our divinity is that, you know, our, 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 our divine spark should be something much uh, greater than that. And then everybody is treated with the same, you know, dignity and worth as, you know, these infinitely valuable things that we should cherish. And it just isn't liberalism is just, I, I hate it. That, that, <laughs> <laughs> so, so great Jasoni, i'm curious what out of uh, all the countries existing now which one would you is closest to your ideal in terms of structure maybe china probably singapore and why is that uh i don't know i mean they had just solid leadership uh i i don't even i don't even know that i care about the structure of government i just think that they did a really good job and i'm really just pacing this off like one post that tracing wrote and i'm like wow this guy sounds really good and i've just never you know, I, I don't really know that I have that informed opinion on the subject. I'm, I'm an American. I'm very narcissistic. I care about America, you know, and I still have like a superiority complex to the rest of the world. So, I mean, like if you got me really drunk, I'd say America, but, you know, it's, I, I don't, I don't think there's like an epistemically honest opinion you can get out of me in that situation. But <laughs> I, I think, yeah, Singapore is a good, the best I can do. So Singapore is a democracy though. Kind of. Kind of. Kind of. Master Thief. They 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 were they were the OG managed democracy long before that became a thing in Central and Southern Europe. You know this this was this was you know Lee Kuan Yew who, as I understand it, uh, was was a prisoner of the Japanese during World War II. Uh, all he wanted to do was was to create and sort of an, an an ideal closed city and not have to care about the rest of the world. In fact, uh, I, I believe it was Singapore actually got kicked out of uh, Malaysia. Because they they just didn't want to participate in the government. I'm saying you uh, are in favor of some restrictions. Can you elaborate on what they are and why you think they're worthwhile in pursuing? You know, interestingly, I don't have extremely specific uh, policy proposals. I mean, I do have a couple that I think are are uh, plausible that we could actually potentially enact. But my main concern is skin in the game. I de Tocqueville in uh, in his book Democracy in America, I believe it was called had this observation that democracy can only last until i'm paraphrasing here but the lower classes realize they can just vote themselves all the upper classes wealth that is a real concern and i mean it it's i I don't really see how you avoid that except uh just each progressive year you get lucky and it doesn't happen but eventually it's going to so um i think some restriction is necessary the the main concern i have and, and actually restricting the electorate is one thing uh i'm also very interested in the possibility of restricting the pool of, of uh, potential candidates for high office, especially when it comes to high office. I think we could solve a lot of the problems with democracy by just not letting certain people be elected. Uh, it, obviously, that's... So let's start with uh, restrictions on voters. Sure. Um, well, okay, two 
two ideas I had that I think might actually happen, and I'm not actually uh, particularly excited about either of these. I just think they're plausible uh, based on what I observe in terms of what people will vote for. One would be tighter restrictions on criminals. Now, right now, the political mood is very much against that uh, for all sorts of reasons. But I think in most cases, the public is willing to, quote unquote, be hard on crime. And I think that we could probably make it much uh, lower the bar for having someone's voting rights revoked, at least on a temporary basis, potentially a permanent basis. There's a broad class of crimes that even if they're not felonies, I think most people engaging in them probably are not net positives in the voting pool. And uh, sure, there's going to be some injustice there. There's going to be good people who end up not being able to vote. But on balance, I think it would probably be a huge net win. The other one, uh, I, I don't know about you, but I am perpetually astonished at the propensity of welfare recipients to vote against welfare. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and, and uh, or, I mean, I can't tell you how many people I personally know who were Obamacare recipients and, and flourishing under it who voted against it. Uh, by, by voting for Trump, because they they were just incensed at the idea. And under that same rubric, I think you could probably make a case for restricting the franchise to net tax contributors, such that people who are drains on the system, if you will, are still citizens, still get full rights and everything, of course, but don't get a say in how the system is run. Now, is that open to abuse? Yes, but everything is. Uh, and especially as the underclass grows and fewer and fewer people can be productive, if you buy that narrative, which I do, uh, in the case of artificial intelligence, there's problems with that moving forward, but it also solves certain problems. Neofas? So since we had the topic of uh, of USA previously having problems with the uh, franchise for minorities and stuff like that, if we only include net tax positive people... Uh, I, I don't know how this looks in, in USA, but in Denmark, there was a, a huge study uh, which found that in Denmark, Norway, and Sweden, women are not net tax positive. So that's probably not a yeah. politically survivable move, so to say. Not if, not if you're upfront about it. But I mean, I also see it like ripe for abuse. So for example, um, how would you really disaggregate who, what counts as a tax? So if you're like a government contractor, for instance, how much of that is you getting fair market recompense versus just like a direct grant or some sort of, you know, welfare recipient or what could possibly be considered uh, just welfare from the government? Well, I think it's a case of letting, uh, not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. Yeah, there's there's going to be problems. There's going to be wrinkles in that. My, my question is, on balance, is it a net improvement? I think it probably would be. If you if you work at the government and you buy coffee in a coffee machine, then that money goes to the government directly, so that's taxes. So anything you buy if you work at a government place is going to be taxes. That's got to be a sweet deal, right? I, th I think I think we're looking at income tax, not uh, sales. <laughs> <laughs> But, I mean, that's just, I, I think you responded by saying it, it can't be, like, the enemy of the good. But it, I see it as just, like, kind of ripe for abuse for attorneys to just kind of pounce on it to figure out how they can maintain as much profit from the system as possible while keeping their vote, if it, if it matters that much. And I have a, gr a greater concern than that, even, which is uh, I was talking to a friend about this topic right before the podcast. And, um, you know, he pointed out that in situations like in Russia very often, whether or not you have a job, whether or not you can contribute, is a function of whether or not you're supporting a, a certain oligarch. That is a real concern as well. And, and I don't know how directly um, 
how much of a corollary this is, but it reminds me of kind of the shenanigans that law schools were pulling and that one of their rankings that was uh, foundational in, in terms of how highly ranked they are is the percentage of graduates that found themselves in a legal job. So for years, what law schools were doing is they would quote unquote hire uh, any unemployed graduate of theirs at like $18,000 a year. And what they would do is give them a grant for approximately that amount in exchange for them volunteering at a nonprofit or government agency. And as a result, they can count them as employed, you know, technically speaking, and that helps boost, uh, boost the, their standing. This lasted a few years before it was uncovered and eventually like the schools were like, okay, fine, we'll stop doing this. Well, right. And that's a classic example of as soon as something is a metric, it stops being a good metric. Um, In this case, though, I think that anybody who is resourceful and clever and driven enough to beat the system that way should probably be allowed to vote. Master Thief. So, 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 so I, I just, I just had a sort of interesting thought. It's like, what, what, what would, what would be the government? Uh, what would you call a government that was, you know, uh, you know, democracy is, is the rule by the people. What would you call a, a, a government that was ruled by the, by the most crafty and thievish and competent? <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so you enact the battle royale and only the winner gets to vote. And then you have like Rubik's puzzles and stuff like that. And the, the one who gets the best time gets to vote, and well, it worked for Rome. I mean, I'm o- I'm only up to about uh, 50 BC, but uh, so far it's going pretty great for him. Yeah, Legends of the Hidden Temple, but for the franchise. <laughs> the the thing that came to mind when you were talking about restricting voting by you know criminality is that the that definitely puts an incentive to criminalize the demographic population that you wish to vote the least. Yes. It does, and it has been used that way. I'm still not convinced that that's a net loss. I have no idea how true it is, but I have read a lot of stuff that the war on drugs was enacted because, uh, is it crack and marijuana? That was the drugs of blacks and hippies, which were the two groups that did not vote for Nixon. That was admitted by one of Nixon's aides. Yeah. Be, be, uh, being admitted does not necessarily mean it's true. I mean, I mean, it depends on which like war on like, I mean, which time scale you're talking. Yeah, about. There, there, like, there have been successive campaigns in the war on drugs, you know, mar- marijuana and cocaine initially. Yeah, that was Nixon. Uh, crack cocaine came later under Reagan, uh, result of the uh, specifically the, the result of the death of Len Bias, who was a rather famous basketball star who who overdosed on crack cocaine and all this. And I was like, oh, my God, this is a terrible drug moral hazard. And they, they just they just went and testified it. Just to clarify the it was John Elrickman, Nixon's aide on domestic affairs, who uh, uh, divulged this information to uh, an author, Dan Baum. That he and Al Ruckman said that the reason for the war on drugs had little to do with protecting Americans from actual drugs, but as a form of retribution against the hippies and the blacks. Yeah, and that is an obvious example of extremely perverse incentives. Yeah. So yeah, and and we don't. And to be fair, we don't have evidence beyond kind of like this admission. There, it's not like there were rec- uh, contemporaneous. I can't say that word. Recordings between Nixon and Elrickman. This is kind of an admission that he made in 1996. Yeah, I think there's a lot of power in the idea that felonies or... Let me see if I know the American justice system right. It's misdemeanors, right? For smaller crimes. I, I think that 
if you're breaking the law of the land, then obviously you do not have the best interests of that land in heart. I often advocate for, even when I speak to anarchists, like, if you want to change the system, that's fine. Go ahead. I don't care about what laws you want changed. But breaking the laws instead of changing them is not the way to do it if we are going by the romantic idea of peaceful Renaissance men discussing issues. Yeah, but again, this is kind of like a a definitional issue um, where you define what the crime is proportional, not necessarily to behavior that you want to dissuade, but uh, targeting people that tend to engage in it. The, The optimistic point would, of course, be that the people as a large congregation decide uh, what the law should be and what the punishment should be. It should not be decided by a few bureaucrats hidden away within some parliament that no one ever gets to vote on. Of Of course, that's not how it works, but it's how it should work. It's how we would want it to work. So, unsaying, uh, you've expressed, or at least acknowledged, that there could be some pitfalls to your proposals, but you say that they still outweigh, um, they're still outweighed by the benefits. What do you consider the benefits to be? Well, first of all, I said that's my guess, and I I have not seriously thought through either of these things, and I'm not seriously proposing them, but, you know, for the sake of conversation, I think it's it's, uh, interesting to talk about. Uh, The benefits mainly being, well, Okay, I guess I need to back up for a minute, because truth is, I think a lot of the people who would be very terrible voters just don't vote in the first place in the United States, um, and that's something we haven't acknowledged yet. But I, I don't know what our participation rate is, but it's shockingly low, uh, or it was to me last time I looked it up. Something like 50%, isn't it? Yeah, it's like 60% in presidential years, and then 40 35% elsewhere. So I'm, I'm not actually convinced that uh, most people who are out there robbing convenience stores are voting in the first place, and I don't know that um, making it harder for them to do so is actually going to have a significant impact. I just think it's potentially something that could be done. Uh, as far as as far as far welfare restrictions, that is, uh, or, or people who are net tax recipients, it wouldn't even have to be at the zero level. Potentially, maybe if you are like negative $5,000 or more, you can't vote. And the reason that I would be interested in something like that is because it it prevents the runaway process of perpetually voting for more and more um, benefits for people who don't and can't contribute to society. I think that can and will eventually take down any democracy that allows it to happen. So would you be in favor of something like uh, restricting the franchise to only, let's say, property owners? Well, that that worked. And I'd like to point that out. Um, I, I think that's never define, really... Define work. Well, that's how it used to be. Um yeah, I know that's how it used to be. That's not the same as worked. <laughs> well, uh, I think that the I think if you look at the cal well, I mean it's a very uh, confounded issue. But if you look at the caliber of decisions that the electorate was making at that time, you're going to find that it was generally much higher quality. They were not electing actors. I mean, granted, it's a little bit different with the national media, but 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 what's what is your metric? It can't just be there's less actors elected to, to office. Well, I think the question of the quality of a political candidate could be quantified in a lot of ways. I don't think we're going to agree on on any on all of them necessarily, but uh, I think we all agree that there is some scale at which certain candidates are just better, more competent, more qualified, uh, and even more morally upright than others. And uh, it's not hard to place someone on that scale relative to anyone else. 
So do I have an exact equation? You can plug in numbers and find out how qualified is this candidate. No, but I think it's something that intuitively we all understand. And uh, I, I want us to get more and more candidates in office who are at the higher end of that scale rather than the lower end of that scale. I think in many ways it, it you know, this could just be a reflection of how society has transformed, but uh, consider constitutionally the, the requirements for someone to be appointed to the Supreme court. There are none. There's no citizenship requirement. There's no judicial requirement. There's nothing. But over time it's been formalized into this very rigorous internal checklist where the, there's uh, these a long list of potential candidates. They're expected to be federal judges that have served in some form of pu- uh, public office for decades. And they're supposed to be as bland as possible so that when they come up for a confirmation hearing, they, they, no, there's nothing that they can, that they can point to uh, that would potentially disqualify them. And similarly, you know, overwhelmingly the politicians that do get elected to office are lawyers. That tends to be who is selected, uh, either lawyers or some form of like successful businessman. You rarely get like kind of just like some random schmo that's like, Hey, I want to run for office. Uh, please like vote for me, which seemed to be like, you know, much easier to do back in the day as in like the 19th century or early 20th century where, this type of informal qualification was less rigorous. And this is kind of, this has happened, you know, there's a lot of confounding variables, but this restriction, this informal restriction has happened uh, in concert with expanding the franchise. I don't disagree. So that could be, I mean, what, why do you think that has happened? Great, Jasoni. Uh, maybe as a transition on the candidate thing, is I just, your uh, yes, seeing what you were saying reminded me of this, is that I, I'm just thinking that, um, I think at the state level and state legislatures, we do have something that kind of approximates um, the the older system of, you know, um, you don't just have all lawyers. And specifically, it's because um, being a state legislator, it just isn't, you know, it doesn't pay a lot, generally speaking. And so if you look at, and mostly I'm thinking of Texas, I'm not really that familiar with other ones, but um, there is... Uh, if you just look at the body of people that are in there, it's either rich lawyers who are independently rich from the practice or um, like, I think like, you know, the Lieutenant governor, he ran like a radio show and there's, you know, but there, there, there's people of different professions there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just this thing of, Oh, well, I am a politician as a full-time job. And I wonder why that is at the state level relative to the federal level. And I mean, I, I think probably just the, the federal actors get too much. Um, they're, they're, you know, they uh, they get too many incentives, too many sweeteners there, whether they don't have to do something else. I mean, I, I guess maybe like AOC had this uh, kind of shtick of complaining about, oh, I can't find a place to stay, or that was some kind of thing when she first came in, but that was quickly, now she's this uh, national celebrity and she has this massive amount of power, right? Is that, you know, DC is much more lucrative and because of that, the, the incentives are different. We have a different pool of candidates there where um, just the, the power is so much greater that they're corrupted. They don't have to work a regular job. You can't be like, you know, Rand Paul going out and uh, doing, uh, you know, continuing your practice or whatever it is. You know, you have just a different set of rules at the state level. And I think as you get into smaller and smaller jurisdictions, you see less of the catastrophic effects of scale happening with regards to candidate pool. Master Thief. 
I, I, th- I think I think uh, Great Jasona makes some some very excellent points that you you look at a state like Texas, which has a famously part time legislature. They meet for maybe four months every two years, and the rest of the time they're off doing their thing. Versus a full time legislature like the U.S. Congress or you know the, the the state of California, whose legislators are all full time. I think it attracts uh, very very different people, and I think uh, if you're if you're going to be uh, electing a branch of people who are writing laws and supervising the operations of government, you want those kinds of average people uh, in the in the st- in the state legislature who, who who go back to the real world uh, when their job is done. Uh, for someone who is supposed to be devoted full time to uh, government service, like you know somebody uh, like like the president, obviously cabinet secretary, state governors, uh, people who have to do full time. Those you want a you want a different mix of people. You want people who have served in government uh, and in in progressively greater and more responsible roles. Um, you, you don't want someone who is who is just an absolute political neophyte. Uh, on the actors, yeah, everybody. Um, everybody says that that the, that the whole actor thing starts with Reagan. But even Reagan, uh, before he was president, he was governor of California, and he was also the president of the Screen Actors Guild, which is a very, very powerful and influential union in Hollywood. So he had to learn how to manage all these these various constituencies within the union. So well, he also um, ratted out a bunch of people in Hollywood for being communists on mostly trumped up charges, which I think earned him a lot of um, favor. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, using using a- actor as kind of like the er example of what disqualifies a politician strikes me as odd because we do have Reagan as as the counter example. I mean, even I would admit, like I, nothing about him like strikes me as disqualifying. Okay, let's say Schwarzenegger then. I mean, he's fine too. Like, yeah, I actually wasn't that disappointed with him. I just think that there's going to be well, look, much. I mean, look at Jesse Ventura. I don't. I don't know. Like Jesse the in body terms of- Ventura. Yeah, excuse me, Jesse the Body Ventura. In terms of, you know, obviously bad politicians, they don't strike me as like the up there at the top. No, but I feel like they're getting way too much of an advantage that they should not have. Okay, so if you were to restrict the the franchise in terms of who gets elected, how would you go about it? Well, I'd like to I'd like to actually kind of bridge that by suggesting something that would work both ways for the electorate and the uh the candidates, and this is going to go full cringe geek here, but um, I I unironically like the system in Starship Troopers by Robert Heinlein, where uh, essentially citizenship is go conferred. <laughs> yeah, sure. Citizenship is conferred by voluntary civil service. So when you're young, everybody who wants to become a citizen signs up for two years, either in the military or in some sort of engineering, you know, project or sweeping the streets, whatever it is, it's just what they're doing is signaling their attitude that they want to contribute to society um, in a way that doesn't necessarily directly benefit themselves. And I think that's a really good filter, and it's something anyone can choose to do, which uh, which I think meets the romantic requirements. I think there's a line in there that, you know, if someone's incapable of anything else, they will, you know, give them a job for two years, you know, repeatedly counting tax in a drawer or something like that doesn't matter. The point is that the person is willing to put that effort forward in a selfless way to signal pro-sociality, essentially. And then once you have that pool of voters, um, candidates for high office also could only be drawn from that pool. So you get kind of a filtration effect on the way in. Now, is that unfair to people who can't afford to take off two years? Yeah, um, it is. And, uh, you know, that that's a problem. But, uh, you know, they can also still be paid for their time. It's just... Uh, 
not not ideally going to be competitive with something they could have been doing on their own. Neofas? Yeah, can't, can't afford sounds weird, seeing as the military, at least in Sweden, pays you for your time. I mean, be entering the military is just a job. It may, Yeah, maybe it's not as high-paying as being, you know, making your own company or being a a tech guy or something like that. But, I mean, you're not going to starve in the military. Right, right. And um, I, I think part of the idea there is he has this whole notion of if you have the right to vote, you should be willing to put your body on the line when it comes to war. But that requires that war is always present, which is probably not a good way to run your country either. Although some would disagree. I think uh, Teddy Roosevelt did. I think Orwell wrote something about that. Yeah, it was a very popular attitude back around uh, the turn of the, the 20th century. And I, th I think, you know, uh, when you have countries like Israel or I believe Switzerland that have compulsory military service for, for future citizens, I think that's probably not a bad idea as long as they're not just sitting in barracks working out all the time. Although I think Chisoni might actually uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, like, like that idea. But, um, but no, I mean, you know, they, they could be doing things like engineering projects, uh, whatever you need manpower for. I mean, that that does not have to be wasted time. It can be used for society's benefit. And I think there's probably something really powerful in that idea and also unifying because then you all have the common experience of um, having worked together on that sort of project for the national good, which is something that I think I see a lot of in uh, post-World War II media where it's clear that, you know, all the people that came back from the war had this notion of, hey, we all were in this together. We all accomplished something together. I think that's uh, very powerful and should not be overlooked. Master Steve. But at, but at, this, but at the same time, it, it has to be a task that, that people want to be involved in. You know, that, that was the difference between, say, World War II and Korea and Vietnam, which was a war that people didn't understand why they were there. People didn't want to be there. Uh, my, my dad was actually uh, a draftee in, in Vietnam, in, in the Air Force, and, and he saw a lot of problems, you know, with, with fighting, with racism, with, with, with drug use. Um, and it, it all came from the fact that the people did not want to be there. So uh, I don't think it's, 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 I think it's a way of reinforcing a sense of civil, uh, civic identity that already exists. But at the same time, I don't think that it can create one out of thin air, which maybe get, goes to more, more of the realism side of it. Unsaying. Yeah, I wanted to finish up the thought about uh, restricting the candidates, and I think it, it might be a good ending note. So essentially, yeah, I know every time I say it, <laughs> Like, I don't think I even did say it before last episode, uh, but <laughs> one of the major concerns about restricting the franchise and with government in general is this notion that there's going to be people who get into positions of power and abuse it for their own personal gain. Uh, that is a problem no matter what, because competency and selfishness tend to go hand in hand at those levels. That's just a human reality. Uh, so rather than just select selecting against that on the way in, say by mandatory civic service, uh, which would filter out some people, you know, you'd also potentially have this interesting concept of selecting people on the way out by, for example, saying once you've held high office or say a Senate position, uh, you have a relative vow of poverty or something after it like that. That's extremely high status. Everyone loves you for it. You enjoy wonderful parties for the rest of your life and so on. But, uh, you are making a significant personal sacrifice that cannot just be circumvented in order to serve. Now, are you screening out a lot of competent people by doing that? Yes, but the ones that are left over are the ones who are in it for the right reasons. That that was sort of the what was that was already the system like back in the 1950s, and it caused like such a big uproar to see pre, prior U.S. presidents impoverished that they instituted kind of like a lifetime pension 
Wait, this was a policy? For that office. Yeah. It wasn't a policy. It was more, um, I forgot. I think it was Dwight Eisenhower or Truman. Yeah, Harry Truman. Truman. Yeah, he, he'd, he'd been a haberdasher in Missouri, and he didn't really have much of anything saved up for when he, after he left office. Well, I think a pension on the way out is a great idea, provided that that's their only source of income. So that way they are provided for. They're not actually literally in poverty. I just mean they're not uh, spending their time in office feathering a nest for when they leave. Well, is that already happening through explicit means? I mean, I think the issue is that there are unofficial channels through which politicians, I mean, they get bribed, essentially. It's not like there's like, we're paying them a ton of money to be in office. Right. And that's what I want to avoid is you're not going to spend your time passing legislation for a giant telecom company. And then when you leave office, you get a $2 million a year, quote unquote, job. I mean, this is this is the norm now. But as recently as Harry, Harry Truman, when he left the, the presidency, he moved in with his mother-in-law's house because he couldn't afford anything else and uh, that was uh, he was the first president to receive a pension at the time it was twenty five thousand dollars a year and it was that was passed in response to his situation that people were kind of horrified to see him a president like kind of like living in poverty partly due to like bad investments and badly performing businesses but it still seemed incongruent whereas now you know you become a president and you just kind of run the speaking tour circuit and get $200,000 for talking for three hours or whatever. And, and the, the original American idea in, in, in point of fact was Washington as the new Cincinnatus, Cincinnatus being the famous Roman general who was nominated by the people of Rome to serve as dictator during a crisis. When the crisis was over, Cincinnatus turned over power, went back to his plow. And if you go to Cincinnati, which is named for the order, you will see a, a, a statue of Washington handing over his commission. He's got one hand giving, giving his papers back and the other hand on his plow. So I think there is, I think there is, has always been a lot to be said in America for somebody who is not dependent on perpetual political office uh, for, 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 the, for their source of income. So, you know, I, I, I don't know how exactly this fits in, but I, th- I think there's, there's something to be said for, you know, not having, you know, professional full-time politicians leading, leading, leading social movements and, you know, just, just trying to keep getting elected and elected and elected into office. Uh, term limits on senators would also potentially be a good idea for that reason. Yeah. Feels like a good stopping point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about how poor Truman is. <laughs> well, okay. The poor didn't bother me. Moving, moving in with his mother-in-law, that's what made her. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. just a setup for a porn movie. I mean, come on, man. It's not even trying to hide it. Uh, yeah, he was, uh, he was also still getting like a pension from the military back when he was in the military, but nothing from being the commander-in-chief. So it was like a very small monthly check for having commanded a company of 150 men in World War One. It was it was an interesting time. Term limits, by the way, are kind of casual because Sweden doesn't have them. Most of our big prime ministers they spend like 12 years, 15 years being in power. Hmm. I think you also have a much more robust system for changing the leading government. Yeah, none at all. Yeah, that's very robust. <laughs> Well, uh, as we, we, we've arrived to the term limit of our podcast. <laughs>